Hello there and welcome to this new episode in my podcast series, Making Babies. I'm Andrea Byrne, I'm usually found presenting the news on your telly. Recently though, I've started this podcast because of the journey my husband and I went through. We spent many, many years trying to start a family. So I really wanted to reach out to try to help people on their own journeys to parenthood. If you're new to this podcast, then a very warm welcome. If you've had a listen to the first two episodes, then thank you very much. You'll be getting the vibe by now that the idea is to talk over all sorts of topics around trying to conceive with lots of people who have a wealth of experience and expertise. Your dream of having a baby naturally in a loving, warm relationship suddenly is going to be medicalised. About eight years ago, uh, I found out I was unable to have children. Yeah, it pretty much changed my life, to be honest. And as much as I can, would like to see us in the future having a family, even if we didn't, I would still enjoy Kev's company and being with Kev for Kev. I'd see women walking down the street with bassinets and have people that are pregnant around me and I got so sad. I'm petrified that it's not going to work. More than one in six, really, you're looking at. More than one in six couples are affected. You're listening to episode three, during which I'm joined by two ladies about to embark on their IVF journey. And also with me is a consultant obstetrician on hand to answer, well, anything and everything, really. As my guests share their advice and their lives with you, I'll also be sharing a little of my story with you along the way. Somehow, against all the odds, after seven long years, we did end up with our precious little daughter, Jemima, who is now nearly two. How she is here remains a mystery because we were told by several doctors around the world that I probably wouldn't carry a pregnancy and we spent a long time enduring treatments and exploring surrogacy. So I really do know how tough the road to parenthood can be and how difficult it is to keep going not knowing what the result will be for you. If I can help you, your friends, your family, your colleagues understand it all just a little bit better as you navigate your way through, then these episodes will have done their job. So welcome to Making Babies. As I mentioned, today I have Kelly and Dion with me on the show. They're bravely sharing their journeys so far with endometriosis, polycystic ovary syndrome and secondary infertility. Dr. Phil Banfield joins the podcast too, generously giving up his time to answer all of the queries. There's a lot of information ahead, so do grab yourselves a pen and paper. With me on the podcast today, I've got two uh, people who I know are, are going to have lots of questions for our expert who's with me on the podcast too. We've got Kelly Hall with us, who's been diagnosed with polycystic ovary syndrome, and Dion Edwards, who's diagnosed with endometriosis. Definitely two of the most common causes of infertility that, that are seen, I think. And we'll expand a bit more on this with uh, Dr. Phil Banfield, who's with us today. From what I know, lots of mystery perhaps around them and unanswered questions. So hopefully we can answer some of those today for people listening and, and for Kelly and Dion who are, who are on the episode with us. So thanks very much for joining us. If I can maybe ask Dr. Phil Banfield first, could you just give me an introduction so that the listeners know who you are and what you do? and what you can maybe help with today. So I'm uh, uh, Phil Banfield. I'm a consultant obstetrician and gynaecologist in North Wales, where I've been a consultant for 25 years. Uh, I trained mainly in London and Cambridge. So um, uh, my training involved quite a lot to do with tracking 
ovarian follicles and uh, and infertility. I'm the father of five, um, but I do have an IVF baby as well. So we um, have uh, knowledge of the process from the from the inside, and certainly being a, being a patient and being on the other side gives a completely different perspective. Thank you very much, Kelly. First, then, if I can uh, come over to you. Thank you very much for being with us today. Tell me a little bit about your story and what's happening with you at the moment. Yeah, thank you. Um, so thank, thank you very much for having me on. Um, so I got married in 2015. And as everybody does, they think that uh, once they have sex once, they'll get pregnant because that's exactly what we get told at school. Um, so it didn't happen for us for the first uh, five months. Um, but then I went to the doctors and I asked for all the blood tests and sperm tests. And actually that week we found out we were pregnant with uh, our little girl, Emily, who's now three and a half. So we were so happy about that. You know, I went through the ups and downs of those five months thinking that I'd never have a baby. Um, in actual fact, we had Emily um, that went just as planned. Um, so we've got her, which was lovely. But as everybody does, um, they think about having their second baby. So when she was two, um, I came off the pill and I decided that we, you know, we would like to try for another one. And in the first month, I, I thought that my cycle was very much different and I was very confused. So I went to the doctors and they, they gave me the same spiel about, you've just come off um, contraception. So it must be that in your system. Um, so then we kept trying and the, my cycle was really off for sort of six months. So I knew that the NHS would take a little while to get back to us, um, you know, if we went for any tests. So I decided to pay for it privately. And luckily enough, my work, my workplace paid for us to see a gynecologist. And um, he scanned me. We had an internal scan and he told me that I had polycystic ovaries, but not the syndrome. So for me, being sort of quite slight, um, small build, um, I'd never heard of it. I started doing Mr. Google and I found out all, so all sorts of different things. Went to a very dark place on the Internet. Um, and uh, that's us, really. So that's been us for 18 months. Um, and we have had lots of different cycles. We've been on uh, Clomid, uh, we're currently on Letrozole, um, we've been on Metformin, and we've gone through that journey of every month you think that it's going to happen, and then every month it, it doesn't. Um, so we're starting to look at IVF um, treatment in January. So that's us really. It, it's, um, it's hard because we've already got one, and um, not only do you have the questions and I've been listening to your podcast about people saying, oh, when are you going to have another one? Or um, do you not want to? Um, it, it's hard to broach. And especially when you think to yourself, I've already done this. I've had a baby. How hard can it be? It is. It's hard. And um, secondary infertility um, hits, uh, I think it's like one in one in three couples. So, yeah, that's that's our story. Thank you. And that's really interesting because secondary infertility is, is something we haven't talked about yet as well on the podcast. So it's, it's interesting to wrap those those two issues into one and maybe we can discover as well a little bit about why things change in your body and how things change. And, and as you say, one in three couples is, is a, a large amount, isn't it? Let me talk to Dion. I know I saw um, Dr. Banfield there, Phil, furiously making notes and we'll um, we'll come to, to him in a minute with some of those those questions and and, and issues which you've just brought up, Kelly. But uh, Dion, tell me about your journey so far. Where are you? Oh, thank you so much for having me, for starters. Where do I start? Well, you know, nobody talks about this really, but I started my menstrual cycle when I was eight years old. 
um, a really young age. So obviously that was really bizarre. And my mum, we were back and forth the doctors and it's rare, but it can happen apparently. Um, I didn't start having pain until I was about 12 years old though. Um, and I was misdiagnosed for years and years. It's IBS, you have intolerances to food, all of these things. Um, and then in 2017, I finally got a laparoscopy where I was diagnosed with endometriosis. And by then you can imagine the damage was quite extensive. So um, I was quite lucky to not lose my tubes and my ovaries. Um, yeah, so we, well, we actually start in IVF next week. Um, we have our first appointment with, um, I have to give my bloods and speak to a doctor and my partner has to give a semen analysis. Um, yeah, so we're starting there really. It's a really touchy subject to talk about really because we've struggled for so long and I guess I'm lucky in the sense that I haven't been trying and not knowing that I couldn't have children. I was told that for me to conceive naturally was a very, it would be a very slim chance. But, you know, I've kept my faith, kept trying just in case. And I know it's hard to summarise your stories in such a short space of time because they're always so complex and individual. Phil, a couple of things to pick up on there. First of all, with PCOS, I was really interested in what Kelly said there regarding you've got polycystic ovaries but not the syndrome so can you talk a little bit more about that and the distinction be between that there are there are three kind of features to polycystic ovaries there's there's the the ultrasound appearance when you uh, scan someone there is a classic uh, appearance that makes it look as if there's a lot of black circles all around the edge of the ovaries so it's called a string of pearl appearance and the ovaries um, uh, get bigger. Uh, and, and we see that in a number of people. It's, it's commoner in people with recurrent uh, miscarriage. Um, and it can be an ultrasound appearance in people who've got normal um, fertility and uh, in people who've got normal periods. So there's the ultrasound appearance. Then there's the, the alteration to your menstrual cycle. So either having no periods or very light and irregular periods and that's because the effect of polycystic ovaries is to keep you stuck in the first part of your cycle so people then don't tend to ovulate or they ovulate erratically which gives an irregular timing to your cycle now if you're stuck in the first part of your cycle you develop the lining of the womb but you then don't mature it and so that lining develops and develops and develops until it breaks down erratically. So what we sometimes see are people that don't have any periods or they have very light periods, or we get people with polycystic ovaries who suddenly have a big bleed two or three times a year. So that's the menstrual um, uh, irregularity. And then the third, third bit of the, is the biochemistry. Um, and the biochemistry centers around becoming resistant to the effects of the hormone insulin which controls your sugar uh, metabolism and if you become resistant to the effects of, of insulin it puts your testosterone levels up as well um, although the, the the female hormones are, are known as estrogen and progesterone 
the testosterone is also made in the middle of the of the ovary and because you then get a higher testosterone and because another effect of being um, uh, having an excess of insulin is you drop the amount of protein in your blood that can bind that testosterone there's more testosterone about floating that causes things like hair and uh, acne and the effect of the insulin resistance is you put on weight the heavier you are the more resistant to insulin you become and so it becomes self-perpetuating um, and it then throws up some really weird anomalies because you might think that you are then uh, dieting by eating a baked potato but because that's starch uh, you can't handle the, the sugar um, we might talk about um, the diet a little bit later on so you only have to have two out of those um, three things to have a diagnosis and then we see people who just seem to behave as if they've got polycystic ovaries um, but without any conc real conclusive uh, uh, evidence of it so it's really the kind of what happens next what is the effect um, uh, of it that matters and what treatments therefore do you need I know Kelly will want to come back on, on some of those things and we can definitely do that as we go along. But to pick up on the other thing that I, I noted down was the secondary infertility factor. Actually, I'm not sure I knew the one in three figure. So that's really interesting. What, what can happen to people's bodies? You know, after lots of people might have a situation where they will get pregnant very quickly after they've struggled a lot in their first pregnancies. Other people suddenly have the, the other way around. So, so what's going on or do we not really know? Well, I mean, there, there are a number of uh, causes uh, for this. There, uh, there's a natural cause of, of the way that we approach uh, intercourse and sex in general changes after you've got uh, a children. You know, there's an element of stress involved. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting stressed about making a baby because intercourse becomes about making a baby. There are physical things that can happen. Now, with all of these, one needs to double check the um, uterine tubes to make sure that there is a, a, a passage between you know, the ovaries and the, and the womb. And, and sometimes these get blocked, not by just uh, sexually transmitted diseases, but, but other infections or, or infections that you don't really even know that you've got. So, you know, it's possible for, for normal bacteria that don't normally cause a problem to cause a problem um, in those circumstances. Um, and then it's the passage of time. The passage of time gives more conditions, more ability to um, take hold. Dion, with, with your case, this is something you've, you've known about for a long time. So you've known that you're going to have, have a problem, which you, you kind of put a positive spin on that, but that must be very difficult to do uh, because it must be an incredibly hard thing to live with. Um, yeah. And you talked about you talked about having all these different diagnoses early on and, and them not being accurate. So that's one thing I thought that um, Phil might be able to, to talk about a little bit. Obviously, at a young age, I would never have had a clue what the word endometriosis even meant. So, you know, neither did my mum, really. Um, you know we've seen multiple gps when i went for my laparoscopy it was a relief when i was finally diagnosed with endometriosis but then i was like i haven't got a clue what this illness is so when they told me that i was stage four and a lot of damage had happened i was absolutely devastated 
I was very, very, very lucky not to lose my tubes and my ovaries because I had two endometriomas cysts and one actually made my tube, my ovary collapse. So it was kind of bent downwards. And then I had a lot of organs sticking together and it was just, it was, it, it was really horrendous. Um, but now I'm actually with a specialist that's helping me and I'm learning more every time I see him. Well, hopefully there'll be some learning today as well. And I'm learning because I don't know a huge deal about endometriosis or PCOS myself. Um, you mentioned a couple of things. You, you mentioned the stages and that you were stage four and you mentioned the cysts particularly um, as well. But essentially you just said, you know, it was hard to grasp what this is. So for, for people listening, um, Phil, what is endometriosis? Well, it's a really weird disease because effectively it is finding the lining of the womb or tissue that looks like the lining of the womb in places outside the womb. Now that means that when you have a period and you're shedding your lining of your womb, that other tissue will bleed as well. And if you have bleeding tissue inside you, it tends to cause scarring and it tends to cause things to stick together. So I've had patients who've had endometriosis of the lung so that every time they have a period, they cough up blood. There are lots of theories about, does it spread in blood? Does it uh, take one kind of tissue turning into a different tissue? But universally, the feature is that it causes pain. But we have some people who have lots of endometriosis, they have lots of babies, and I only spine the endometriosis when I'm sterilizing them. And I've got other people who don't appear to have got very much endometriosis at all, crippled by pain. So it is a very, very strange um, uh, illness. We have a reluctance to diagnose endometriosis in youngsters and teenagers. Um, you know, I think we probably patronize um, uh, teenagers and of course they're making too much fuss um, and, and one of the advances that I had hoped would happen in my career was that we would start to listen to people because it's a very easy diagnose to make a presumptive diagnosis of. You know, people tend to have particularly painful periods. It's stimulated by the hormone estrogen and therefore you have a number of treatments available to you that are aimed at taking away the menstrual cycle the easiest one of which is to put someone on the combined pill treatment for endometriosis helps with pain it doesn't particularly help with uh, fertility and i'm not sure that there's very much evidence that treating endometriosis early on necessarily necessarily prevents it from becoming worse um, uh, with time. And you know, if you get uh, endometriosis of the ovary, then when you have a period, you bleed into your ovary. So you suddenly get hemorrhage into your ovary and the, the blood with time has the fluid sucked out of it and it becomes like melted chocolate. So you'll hear the phrase with endometriosis, chocolate cysts. And so it can be a real nightmare to operate on someone who's got advanced 
um, uh, endometriosis. But, and I think this is the approach that Dion's taking, with stage four endometriosis, still one in four people will, will get pregnant. Because some people who don't appear to have got very much endometriosis at all have difficulty conceiving. Some people who've got advanced disease do still conceive. I was uh, just looking at some of the questions which I know Dion was was thinking about asking you as well and I think these might be relevant to, to Kelly because you're both you haven't experienced IVF before this is the first time you both you're both going on a new journey with with IVF so for people listening at home who might be at the same stage what can they expect from their first initial appointments and that first cycle of IVF? You know perhaps for, for a lot of people this will be the first time that they've met people who understand that what you're about to do is is challenging and potentially uh, stressful um, and that there's a lot of anxiety uh, associated uh, with it. To start off with they will be trying to ascertain whether you have a cause for your um, difficulty conceiving or not and that may affect their approach to the treatment that they recommend. So a lot of the blood tests and the, the, the testing um, of, um, the, uh, of both partners uh, usually, uh, um, but obviously different if it was a same-sex um, um, uh, relationship uh, going for IVF. Then they, there will be a lot of talking about what's in prospect um, and uh, how they will want to control your cycle by switching off your ovaries to start off with because that enables them to, to time of ovulation or, or egg collection, whichever one they're, they're doing. So they will, they will give a, a usually a number of drugs that will uh, aim at, at down-regulating the ovaries, switching the ovaries off, and then a number of drugs that will stimulate the ovaries because they want to develop um, a number of the little cysts that have the eggs in, which are called follicles, and they will then track those follicles using ultrasound until the point of either harvest or if they're going to induce ovulation, the point at which they start the ovulation off. Kelly, I know that you had a, a particular question regarding PCOS and, and insulin resistance. Uh, Do you want to ask Dr. Phil about that? Um, I was given metformin um, to support with insulin resistance. So for the past 18 months, I was taking metformin, which for anyone who's ever taken it before, it can really mess around with you. And when I had my first consultation with my IVF specialist um, last month, he actually said, have you ever thought about your diet? And I said, well, no, because um, I'm very fit. I work out a lot. Um, I'm a very good uh, average weight, my height. And I said, every time I looked up PCOS diet, it always came up with, here's how to lose weight. And that's something I, I don't want to do. And he said, no, it's about anti-inflammatory. So it's looking at, and as I think you said um, a couple of minutes ago around having a potato doesn't help you lose weight if you've got, if you've got polycystic ovaries, because it actually does the reverse. Um, because it's um, a high um, GMI index, uh, GI index. So I've been starting to look at anti-inflammatory um, diet and he, I've also started taking Incitol as well to support with um, PCOS. So it's, it's those questions really around um, diet, anti-inflammatory, how does that work? 
um, Incitol is something to take um, and then also metformin because my question around metformin is that um, some studies have suggested that it's got a high risk to Alzheimer's and I know I'm only taking it for a very short period of time um, to help with sort of getting pregnant um, but around those those questions really I know that's quite a lot but um, met metformin's the the most straightforward one because we've got the most information about it. So there's quite a lot of, of evidence suggesting that because it improves your insulin resistance, uh, helps with ovulation, um, and, it, and it reduces miscarriage rates, because miscarriage oh. rates are, are, are higher in uh, polycystic ovaries. Anti-inflammatory uh, diet, I think, is a, is a difficult one. Um, there's some evidence that somebody with polycystic ovaries, the, the underlying condition is a kind of chronic inflammatory condition and that some of the markers for inflammation are raised in about 40% of people with polycystic ovaries. Uh, I, how to translate that into science that says here is a study of, of an anti-inflammatory diet, I think becomes more, more difficult. Um, there's logic to the glycemic index of foods. Uh, the idea that perhaps a, a, a slice of white bread and a slice of brown bread have got the same calories in, but the, the, the bran in the, in the brown bread allows the absorption of sugar to be slower, so your body can then um, uh, adapt to that. In this at all, I, that, do you know what? That's a really interesting, um, that it improves ovulation, there was a, um, a review of all the studies of it a couple of years ago. That the numbers weren't, weren't big enough to draw conclusions of whether that results in more babies or not. Um, but you know, there's some logic to it. And you know, as the studies come out, uh, that probably, probably will help more than metformin because as you've discovered, metformin has a lot of side effects to it, primarily, you know, a lot of people get gut problems with um, with metformin. Um, you are, you know, anyone that's got polycystic ovaries is more likely to get diabetes in pregnancy. Um, not only just for pregnancy, but also diabetes later in life. Now, whether that's related to the polycystic ovaries or related to their higher BMI later on, um, uh, I'm not sure that we really know. Strangely enough, I started taking Incitol because we were starting to try for a baby and I suffer from anxiety and have been on um, medication for quite a while. And when I when I was pregnant with Emily, they suggested that the medication um, could affect her, the fetal, etc, etc. So I wanted to take a more natural effect. For, um, for anxiety. So I started taking Incitol. And then while I've been on this journey, I've actually realized that depression and anxiety are a cause of polycystic, so polycystic ovaries is a cause also of anxiety and depression. So, and, and for me, having been diagnosed with anxiety, I think it was in 2013, you know, I, um, I'm very lucky. I've got a good job. I've got lovely friends. I've got a great life. And the doctor said to me, what are you anxious about? And I really couldn't answer because my life is fine, but I have this anxiety it's because of the polycystic ovaries that I have anxiety because it's around the hormonal effect. So it, it all now is starting to make sense and unraveling. Um, which is good and bad in a way, you know? 
So there's a really interesting study of, of teenagers with polycystic ovaries um, and, and what the features were. And, and as you say, actually, um, depression and anxiety were more prevalent in those with polycystic ovaries. And what's so hard on top of all of that is when you're going into the, into treatment, that, that can also trigger, obviously, the depression and anxiety as well. I know, Dion, that's something you, you've been struggling with, your mental health. One of your other, other big questions is to help with that as well. It's all combined, isn't it? How do you prepare yourself well physically for, for IVF in terms of vitamins and diet and, and that type of thing, as well as mentally? The best diet that you can have is, is always the, the, the right thing to do. Uh, it, sometimes it's 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 difficult if you've got severe endometriosis your ability to exercise is is reduced because actually it cripples you mm. you know um and it's something that you can't see so other people find it difficult to understand why someone is in such pain and then you know although endometriosis starts usually with pain just with periods now, as the scarring gets worse and worse, you get pain all the time. You know, you have to be certain that, that, that you're taking your folic acid. What other vitamins um, you take, just, just making sure that a, a general multivitamin tablet is probably all, all that you need. Well, that's what I've been tending. I've started the folic acid and obviously I'm on multivitamins. Um, vitamin D, I've been told, is supposed to be good for you as well. But obviously when it comes to exercise, for IVF, typical, I'm just, just over. So you have to, your BMI has to be between 20 and 30, and I'm 30.1. So luckily now, I've, got, I've, I've worked really hard to get down to the size for IVF that I need to be. But you're right, with exercise, I tend to go on the running machine a lot. I, can't, I find I can't go running outside because if I go on bumpy roads or anywhere that's uneven I pay for it the next day I have really bad flare-ups I mean I pay for it when I'm on the running machine but it's a lot less than what it would be if I went to go for a jog outside it's it's this illness it, it is it's horrendous in certain senses when you when you're being stimulated for your IVF you know we are suddenly giving you hormones you know and some people with endometriosis find it a bit more uncomfortable you know to have their their ovaries stimulated yeah. um, especially if they're stuck down for both of you what would you say your main worry is around the IVF treatment so like anyone um when we started on this journey I always had a feeling that IVF would be um well first of all I thought IVF never me that's never going to happen to me um, and I know a lot of people think that as well when they first start trying for a baby it's going to happen straight away and then as we've been going on this journey for the past 18 months just before we had our meeting with our first consultant I thought to myself I can't do this I'm not physically able to put myself through the fact that IVF might not work and uh, it might not work at all. Um, we could have three cycles and, um, you know, we've lost a lot of money because we have to pay for all of our IVF because we've already had Emily. Are we ready to go through that as a marriage? Um, are, am I ready to go through that um, personally? Um, and that was difficult um, for me. And when I spoke to the consultant about it, I said, I don't, I don't know if I can do this. And he said, yeah, I 100% understand. He said, but because you've got polycystic ovaries um, and you've got Emily, there is a high chance that you will get pregnant and we will see a live birth. 
Um, he also said that you've got a high chance of hyperstimulization. So what will happen is we will induce your periods um, with a short protocol. So um, you'll have um, less drugs. But what might happen is, is you're going to have hyperstimulization. That means that we'll collect the eggs from you, but you won't be able to have a fresh transfer because you're going to be overstimulated. Um, so that means that we'll have to bring you back in and use frozen, frozen follicles um, to put inside of you. But it's, I guess it's, it's just around, just around what is the percentage really with IVF? You know, are we all more likely to get pregnant? Because that, that's the thing, isn't it? I don't think anybody knows. That's a million dollar question. Uh, you know, it, it's difficult because, you know, to a certain extent, when you're doing IVF, you're buying a, <clears throat> a, a lottery ticket that gives you a one in three chance. When we went for IVF, you know, I'd already got children, but my wife hadn't. She found that really tough. But what she got comfort sitting in the waiting room with the other people was, you know, I might get pregnant in this cycle, but if I don't get pregnant, perhaps one of the other two people that's in this room will get pregnant as well. And, and, and she found that really quite comforting. The biological drive for a woman to have a baby is, is enormous. You know, and you would like to think there was some logic to it, or you could argue it logically, but you can't. That's in that's in you. Um, the, the 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 men that you know they see their 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 wives or partners putting themselves through hell to have a baby. First. So it does challenge your relationships, and and talking to each other, and trying to get that understanding is one of the things that is very important. Um, uh, I, I think going back to your um, uh, in Ocetol, that that uh, probably reduces your chance of, of having ovarian hyperstimulation. You know, we want to get lots of 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 eggs, right? But if we if we have too many eggs, and what happens to the ovaries, it just blows up with enormous cysts. And if it blows up with enormous cysts, you start to leak protein into your tummy and you start getting fluid into your tummy. Um, with, and part of why they monitor you so closely is to try and prevent that. It's unusual though, right? That's why they do the follicle tracking is to try and prevent that from happening. Something um, that, that you picked up on as well, um, Kelly, and hopefully this is helping both of you, this discussion about, about, about um, the uh, potential pitfalls and, and what can be done to prevent them and, and something you mentioned which again I think will be relevant to a lot of people listening and hopefully both of you when you talked about the, the fresh transfer versus maybe having to have a frozen transfer because of the complications um Phil what are what are the statistics around that because I was told at lots of points as well that actually if you go for a frozen transfer with um an embryo that you stored from a fresh cycle often it can be better because it means your body's calmed down and, and it's not going through all those hormonal changes because of the drugs and you've got a different set of circumstances or maybe for a myriad of other reasons who knows i i like to stick to the about one in three because because you will have different ivf units quoting different figures and it's so affected by a maternal age for example um that that's probably the best kind of figure to to hang on to and that's probably similar for a fresh or a frozen cycle overall 
what's your thoughts on that uh, Dion and are your concerns around something completely different what would you say your biggest concern is as you go into this it's all quite daunting I'm I'm petrified that it's not going to work like I I understand there's a chance that it's not going to work I completely understand that and I'm trying to stay positive about that because you know it is a gamble and it is a risk that isn't going to work and apparently um I've heard that it's 56% chance that it could work. So that's just over half, but there's still the other half that it might not. So I'm petrified that I'm going to put my body through all that stress and all that pain and obviously strain on me and my partner's relationship because it's not just, you know, it's not just me that's going to lose out. It's also my partner, which is in, he's in the same position as I am. We both really want a child. Um, so yeah, I'm just, I'm petrified that it's not going to work. We have all those same fears and I found it really helped and I couldn't always control this, but I tried my best, um, just to not get my mind running too far ahead in the process because I'd start thinking, like, well, what if this doesn't happen? What if that doesn't happen? What if this doesn't happen? And then, and, and I was catastrophizing everything and it's so easy to do. And I think that's why sometimes going back yeah. to your consultant and, and, and sticking to the facts of what is just the next step is, is really useful going back to that to the science and what we do know and what is going to happen next medically well it it, it is very difficult isn't it because individual circumstances uh, as Dion correctly points out give you give you different chances of success you know so you know for for the, for the right person their individual chance might be 40 50 60 percent but that's in that cycle so you know being able to put yourself through another cycle gives you another chance yeah. so you know cumulatively actually the chances are, are pretty good that doesn't stop you worrying as soon as an embryo goes back there's a nervousness and you know the pregnancy test um, because you don't tend to bleed they they tend to give you progesterone that will maintain the lining beyond whether you're pregnant or not pregnant the point at which it might not have worked you've got to wait for your ovaries to settle down again so that you don't then have cysts on your ovaries. And for, for Dion in particular, you know, if she has an endometrioma at a particular time, then, then is it the endometrioma that's causing the problem or is it a cyst from the IVF? And sometimes they can be difficult to, to, to distinguish. This is what they've said. Um, you know, they said just prepared when you do go for IVF, that they may want to get rid of that endometrioma first because obviously it's right on my ovary. And I had two cysts. One was a normal cyst, which luckily it went away with one of my periods. And then I've got this one then. And he's, he's hanging on. He doesn't want to go anywhere. It, it wouldn't surprise me if they would want your um, endometrioma dealt with first. Yeah. I guess it's, it's being prepared for that, isn't it? And again it's really heartbreaking sometimes when you know you've got to wait again for something else to happen before you can, can yeah. start the treatment. There are a couple of questions which um, came in from listeners. A lot of it's to do with age, actually. One of them, is there an age limit to IVF on the NHS? And the other one, is there anything that women over 35 can do to naturally preserve fertility when they haven't yet met a partner? Um, it's the ticking clock, which all of us feel the pressure of, I think. So, so, so the age um, uh, limits depends on where you are. For England and Wales, the age limit's um, 43. 
but it's easier to get IVF in Wales if you're under 40 or up to 40. In terms of age and preserving fertility, smoking's the really big one. Um, you know, smoking reduces your chance of conceiving, probably it increases your chance of miscarriage, and it probably ages you about 10 years in terms of your fertility. So smoking's the big no, no, no. Get, getting your BMI to be the, as, as good as it, uh, it, it can be, uh, you know, not drinking to excess. So all of those things will, will help you. We're sort of coming to the end of our time um, together. So I just wanted to go back to both of you. And if there's any burning questions which haven't been answered to give you the opportunity to ask those now. So um, Kelly, is there anything you wanted to pick up on from everything you've heard that might help you? Um, not necessarily a question, but there's definitely something that I wanted to let everybody else know who listens to the podcast. And there's two things, really. The first thing is um, about secondary infertility. Obviously, I'm, I'm sat here. I am absolutely blessed with having a, a daughter and, and having her conceived her naturally. I think they're also not to let yourself get to the point where you feel so saddened at the fact that you should be blessed with your first one, which you are. But you also desperately want a second one for lots of different reasons. Um, and then the other thing is as well, I, I read something, I read an article um, a year ago, which really helped me. So I, I'd see women walking down the street with bassinets and have people that are pregnant around me. And I got so sad sort of thinking, why, why them? Why not me? Have I done something wrong? Why should they get pregnant? But actually um, it, it read that that person could have went, this, this baby that they're carrying could have been their fifth IVF this could have been their fifth marriage um, miscarriage you know somebody walking down the street like Dion um you know who hopefully 100% hope that gets pregnant through IVF someone could not like you because you're pregnant or because you've got a baby with you and actually you've gone through our, um endometriosis and we don't know each other's journeys um yes it could be that they've had sex for the first time and they've had a baby and that's just perfect but also if you are going through this journey, just know that everybody else's journey is so different and you just don't know their circumstances. And that helped me to stop feeling the way that I felt because I felt awful for that woman that was pregnant. I felt awful for that woman walking down the street with twins in a bassinet. I, I, I couldn't help it. So yeah, that, that really comforted me and stopped me feeling like that. That's really powerful. And actually, when you think about it, it's quite a simple thought process but it's something that when you're going through IVF is almost impossible to, to align in your, in your mind, I think. So thank you for that. That will, I think that will really help a lot of people. Um, Dion, is there any, anything that you wanted to add or ask Phil before we go? I, all my questions have been answered and I'm really grateful. Thank you, Phil. Um, really, really grateful. Um, it's just a little bit of advice to everybody, really. Um, you know your own bodies. So if you know something's wrong, or you feel something isn't right, fight for, fight for it. So keep fighting. And when it comes to IVF or trying for a baby, just keep going. Just, just keep as positive as possible because stress, stress does nothing for you. So just keep going and keep fighting. Well, thank you so much, both of you, because it's really hard to talk about it, especially when you're in the middle of going through it. So thank you very much. Um, and I, I wish you huge amounts of strength and, and huge amounts of luck and I and, and hopefully you're going to be those ones walking down the street with the, with the pram and um, and you'll be able to hold all those good wishes for others um, I just want to pick up on the stress element before we go and just if people are listening who are going through treatment and they're actually struggling a lot more with that mental health side of things um, Phil 
what should they say to their consultant to, to try and get that help? Because I know that it's really overwhelmed those services at the moment. Actually, the IVF units uh, may be the, the, the place to get that because um, all of the IVF units understand how stressful this is and they quite often will have counsellors yeah. um, um, there. So, I mean, it's important to talk about it because bottling it up and and having feelings and behaviors that the people around you don't understand right if you if you keep that to yourself it just adds to the stress and it adds to the challenge in your in your relationships so so talk about it and and ask people to understand how you're feeling well, thank you, Phil, for listening today because you've taken your time out to do that. And I'm, as Kelly and Dion both said, they're really grateful for that. And I know that lots of people listening to this podcast will be really grateful as well. So, yeah, we really appreciate it. And I, hopefully I can persuade you at some point to come on again and, and talk about some other conditions with some other people. <laughs> I'll see if I can persuade you. Thank you all of you for your time. No and thank you very much indeed. And uh, enjoy your day. Before I go, a reminder to get your questions in to me. They can be about anything fertility related. I'll have a range of experts on over the coming weeks. But for the next two podcasts, I am particularly looking for questions you may have about miscarriage and about surrogacy. You can get those in to me at Andrea Byrne TV on Twitter or Instagram. That's at Andrea Byrne TV and that's B-Y-R-N-E. I look forward to hearing from you and trying to help really hope you can join me for the next episode. I'll see you soon. Bye-bye for now.